I'm very glad to be with you this morning. If you're joining us online, welcome. Glad that you're part of it. If you're new to New Hope, welcome. My name is Mark, and I get to serve as a lead teaching pastor here, senior pastor. And so I'd be happy to meet you or connect with you after the service if we have a chance to do that. I'll be down here in the front. We're working through a series called Hard Questions. And uh, we've worked through about 11 of them so far this morning. The hard question is, if God is good, why is there so much suffering? I bet you've had that question come up, either in your own mind or in your social circle. It's the hardest question from the standpoint of individuals who have not yet had a relationship with God, because it's the thing that keeps many individuals out of the kingdom. In the sense that they believe that maybe there's a God, but if He's good, then He's not all-powerful. And if He's all-powerful, then He can't be good because there's so much suffering and I can't get my mind around it, so I'm out. We come to this question um, with uh, three responses this morning. And the one that kind of triggered in my mind was that of an observer. We're going to look at it from the observer's perspective, from the sufferer's perspective, and from God's perspective. But about a month ago, when the towers fell in Florida, I heard a report a few days afterwards that one of the firemen who was on the scene found a 10-year-old girl two days after the event, and she was staring at the rubble. What they had found out was that her parents had been killed in the fall of the tower, and they don't know how long she had been standing there. The dust was still piling up in the air, and the fires were burning, and she was disheveled and just staring, not able to communicate and talk, just in complete shock. In a moment like that, someone who doesn't have a relationship with God or maybe a weak relationship with God might look at that and say, God's certainly not good. What do you say in a moment like that? How do you respond when people ask hard questions? And it can't be a trite or simple or an answer of just plain complacency. There has to be a biblical response. And so I want to look at this biblical response with you this morning to this very hard question that comes up. If God is good, how do I understand human suffering? So the three perspectives I'm going to give you this morning, the observer's perspective, it's, it's going to come from John chapter 9 and the man who was born blind. And from the sufferer's perspective, the person who's actually walking through it, I'm going to take you into the book of Job. And from God's perspective, I'm going to take you to a story that Jesus is involved with called the Tower of Siloam, when a tower falls and crushes some people. So as we move into this, we're going to find that this first story, the one in John chapter 9, is probably one of the hardest stories to understand in all of the New Testament. We're just kind of going to go through it very quickly. Don't expect to dive into it deeply. But let me bring up for you on the screen John chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, as he passed by, and it's speaking of Jesus here, he saw a man blind from birth. And notice right away that God's the one who takes the initiative. It's not the disciples. It's not the man who's blind. He can't see God. He can't see Jesus. But God sees him. And God's the one who takes the initiative. The man had no capacity to see. And we're told that this one is blind from birth, meaning the biological pathway of vision was never complete for him. He lives in this world of complete darkness. He's never seen. He's cut off from all that we know. And it's not a matter of correcting his vision. 
This last week, my eye doctor set me up with a new pair of eyeglasses. And I was amazed afterwards how clear I could see as a result of putting those on. And I said, wow, I didn't realize how bad my other glasses were. In the case of this individual, it wasn't that he needed eye correction. He didn't need ointment put on, which was a really popular thing to do in the first century, to put salve on the eyes, hoping to restore something of an infection that had taken over the eye. He's never seen anything, so life for him is confined to this narrow world of utter blackness. So the disciples logically ask a question. Watch in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. Now, it's really interesting that the disciples know that he's born blind, meaning that they know who he is. He's known to the community. He's 30 years old, according to the story. And the only way for them to know that he was born blind is to know his story, and somehow they know it, and they're confused. Like, how did this happen? So he's got to be familiar to them. I'm glad that they asked the question. That they even think the question means they think like we think. doesn't matter if you live in 2021 or in the first century. As a race of species of humans, we are judgmental. And we step into judgmental mode really, really quickly, and that's exactly what you find them doing. And they're philosophizing. They're not just judgmental. They're philosophizing because they're concerned with the problem of suffering. So his condition creates a really difficult dilemma, a difficult theological dilemma, a God dilemma. And it's extremely difficult. It's this hard question, why the suffering? How is it that this one has come to this? I want you to notice they're not laying the blame at God's feet. They're laying it at the man's feet. They're not suggesting this is God's fault. They're wondering what this guy did or what his parents did. Here's why. The disciples are products of a bias. And a bias in the first century, especially in Israel, said that if you're suffering from calamity, if things are going wrong in your life, no matter what the issue is, God's brought judgment upon you because you're sinning. There's a popular doctrine that's in the first century that ultimately there's got to be some sin issue in your life, and you find them freely, especially among the Pharisees, throwing around those ac accusations. Well, we would have to say they're not totally wrong because we know that all suffering on this planet is a result of the fall of man, is the result of sin. In a very general way, we would say all suffering, all disease, all death exists because of sin. Scripture makes that really clear. And it's also true, specific illnesses can sometimes be the direct consequence of a sin issue. And maybe God is disciplining. You only have to look at the book of Numbers, go to chapter 13 or chapter 12, and you find the issue of Moses' sister, Miriam. And Miriam is in defiance mode over Moses and his authority. And in fact, in that case, she's defying God because God was working through Moses. He's the ordained leader. So God strikes Miriam with leprosy, and he tells her it's because of her defiant attitude. And ultimately, she doesn't end up dying with leprosy, but God inflicts that upon her. And we know, tragically, that children can suffer the consequences of their, their parents' sinful choices, but crack babies would be an example of that. 
I, I worked with a lot of children many years ago and, and saw quite a few children whose parents had been involved with substance abuse, and they were reaping the repercussions of that. But that doesn't mean the kids committed something wrong. The idea that a child is punished for the sins of their parent is a concept completely foreign to Scripture. Let me show you this on the screen. Look with me at Deuteronomy 14. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, that's a whole other issue we could go down. We're not going to. We don't have time for that this morning. There's an alternate thing going on, though, that the disciples had not even thought of. There's an alternate here that doesn't occur to the disciples, so God Himself has to set the record straight. Remember I said the disciples are not laying it at God's feet, they're laying it at man's feet? So it's God who places the responsibility on God. Look with me at verse 3. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So you got to do something with that. God says God allows it. God the Son, Jesus the man, in the midst of the heartache says, there's purpose in this pain. Now, don't get hung up on the fact that God allows it. Get hung up on the reality that Jesus has just said, there's purpose here. There's a reason why this happened. And that's very consistent with Scripture. God doesn't hide this reality, but rather He declares it loudly. Look with me at this, Exodus 4, verse 11. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So Jesus says, neither. Neither this man nor his parents have done this. And his neither is a complete rejection of the thought that this man's own personal sin is the cause. He simply is saying, the blindness this guy was born with, this is an opportunity to show God's power, and Jesus has come to reveal that power. So in John 9, let me take you back to verse 3, he says this, that the works of God might be displayed. Do you know what Jesus is doing there? He's summing up the answer to the question that many people ask, okay, so if God's all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful, and He knew that man was going to sin, and He knew there was going to be a fall, why even create us in the first place? Why even go bother with it? He knew that all this was going to happen. And Jesus has just summed it up in just a very short answer. The problem of why allow it, why the original sin, God the Son has just said that He would be known, that God would be put on display, that all would know Him. In other words, the disciples' focus is backwards. They're analyzing how He came to suffer. Jesus' concern is forward. He says it's about putting God on display. That's the reason. If, if you're presently, personally suffering and going through a trauma right now of some type, you can draw great encouragement from the reality of what Scripture indicates that your trauma is not random. It's not just by accident as those things are completely out of control. The circumstances may not be known immediately. In this case of this man born blind, he went 30 years that way. It may not even be known this side of eternity. But God says there's a purpose in this. You belong to Him. There's a purpose in what you're going through. 
So the disciples have made a really common mistake. They've assumed there's a direct connection between personal sin and suffering. And additionally, they add one more thing to it. They assume that anyone with some kind of an affliction suffers in direct proportion to the sin that they've committed. And you want to yell out to them, have you guys not read Job? I assume they have, which takes us to our second illustration. We've looked at it from the perspective of the observer. Let's look at it from the perspective of the one who's suffering. Now, admittedly, there's a major challenge when you and I are walking through times of trauma. When we're walking through times of struggle, the thing that goes into our mind is absolute confusion when we look at the devastation around us and we say, why me? Why do I have to be the one to go through this? And in Job's case, he's no different. He wants an answer and he wants vindication. So Job's argument, if you read the story, you'll find him ultimately saying, I haven't done anything wrong. Why am I the one who has to go through this? Yet he's suffering like no one else. If you haven't read the Old Testament book of Job, what you're going to find is he lost not only his source of livelihood, his job, his finances were all wiped out. He lost his family and he lost his physical health all in the matter of a very short span of time. And ultimately it appears that he lost the support of his wife as well. So he finds himself on an ash heap saying, why me? Why would I have to be the one to go through this? Especially in such a short window. And he's left wondering, why has this tragedy come to me? Now he does what you and I do. We form mental arguments. And sometimes those mental arguments become verbal arguments. And in Job's case, they did. And he began formulating this argument in his mind of how he would address God if God would show up. Look at me on the screen at Job 9, verse 32. He, speaking of God, he is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. And if you read Job chapter 3, you're going to find that he's in a very, very dark place by the time you get to chapter 9. He's not looking to suicide for the answer, but he wants off this planet. It's far too broken. It's far too devastating. The loss is so enormous. He wants a way out of it. It's just too much pain. So he yells out, I have to have an advocate because obviously God is not my advocate. And he wants God to explain himself. And in thinking like this, Job's revealing that he's exactly like the disciples. He's thinking, well, if I deserved it, okay, then I'll take it. But as it is, this is far beyond what I deserve. And that's what the disciples are thinking. They're thinking sin is proportionally producing pain. And that's where Job's at. Now, perhaps you've looked around and you're wondering privately, why the tragedy? Not only viruses on a global scale, businesses shut down, world economies destroyed, unprecedented job loss, the finances to go with it. And then seemingly to, to dwarf last year's event comes this new wave of what they call the Delta variant and, and then the violence in the streets and crimes within the city. And more people losing their lives in legitimate cries for justice. 
No matter where you land in the political spectrum, in the quiet hours of the night, many people privately wonder, is, is evil taking over? Is that what's going on here? Has God lost control? And perhaps like Job, you want answers. Job actually uses 36 chapters in the book of Job to formulate his arguments along with his friends about why things are happening the way they're happening. And his conclusion, when you come to it, he, he finally says, I, I think God made a mistake. He's got the wrong Job. He didn't mean to come to my house. He can't have meant for me to suffer this. And so there comes the turning point in the story when God does show up and he asks the ultimate question. Look with me at this, chapter 40, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. In other words, God's saying, You fill me in, Job, since you're so smart. Verse 8 Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Church, I'm asking this question Must God? be condemned that we would be vindicated? Must God be condemned that we would be satisfied? Must God be condemned that we would be justified? There's an answer to that question, but I'm going to have to come back to that. The natural default mode that humans fall into is we want God to explain His rationale. And this is the issue that leaves people questioning the possibility of a loving God. So much suffering and so much trauma. Why the murder? Why the broken homes? Why the injustice? Why the disease? Why the crime? If God is God and good, then he's not all powerful. And if he's all powerful, then he's not good. There's just too much brokenness. I can't have both and have this mess. I'm out. And you probably know people who have approached it that way. Besides those thoughts, there's this presupposition. God owes me an explanation. And that's the way Job approaches it. God owes me at least an explanation for why I'm going through what I'm going through. And here's a hard reality. You're, you're church people this morning. That's not the hard reality, all right? Here's a hard reality, church people. You're, you're in church at 11 o'clock in the morning on Sunday when it's gorgeous out in July. You could be doing anything, but you chose to be here. So church people, there's a hard reality. God does allow his own to go through suffering. Say amen if you agree with that. I know not everybody agrees with that. God does allow those who belong to him to go through suffering. But it's not without purpose. There's purpose in the pain. So to the church, he says this. Look at what James wrote. James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Uh, many people who are church, church people, mature people in, in the Bible will read that and say, I get it. Okay, I, I know that I'm going through trials, and I know that God allows me to go through trials. I understand it. But they forget there's a purpose in it. It produces something. In other words, there's an end product. 
As far as your own personal life is concerned, James wrote, let the refining process do its work because coming out the other side, it will refine you. God will use it if you trust Him. So let me give you quickly four biblical realities. We've already looked at these. They've they've just come this quickly. They're in your notes this morning. I'm going to put them on the screen for you. Here's four biblical realities about suffering. Sometimes suffering is because of sin. We saw that in Numbers chapter 12 with Miriam getting leprosy. Sometimes it's because God needs to discipline. Number two, sometimes suffering is for chastening. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks to that. In other words, for correcting. Sometimes suffering is for strengthening. First Peter, Peter writes about that. And sometimes suffering is for a greater opportunity to reveal God. Let me show you how that would flesh out in your life. How can you reveal God? Listen to what Paul wrote. I don't know that too many people understood suffering the way that Paul understood suffering. But he writes to the church at Corinth, and he writes with this instruction about suffering. This comes from chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those, there's the reason, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Let me keep going. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer. Paul's writing very clearly to the church at Corinth. You going through it? You're going to be able to speak into someone else's life that much stronger, that much greater. And if you've ever known anyone who has never really faced severe struggles, you know right away that those individuals are spiritual lightweights. They bring nothing to the conversation. If they've never gone through it, they don't know what the depth of hurt is. They're just without words. All they can say is, wow, sorry because they don't know what it is to comfort someone who's going through that kind of sorrow, that kind of struggle. But Scripture is showing you that the more God allows you to endure, the deeper that you go and the deeper your roots go, the more you can comfort others. So this struggle and this suffering, it makes you lasting. What does it produce? It produces endurance. So sometimes it's for correcting, sometimes it's for strengthening, But in every case, it's to put God on display. Now, we've identified some of the knowable reasons for suffering. We we live on a fallen planet. We accept that. We understand this is life on a fallen planet. But what about when it's unknowable? That's when it drives us crazy. That's when we can't figure out and put any solutions together. It's the unknowable that drives us nuts. And so Jesus tells us, In those situations, don't jump to conclusions. It's not always because of sin. 
but that God would be put on display, that God would be glorified, magnified. So what does James write? What's the produce in suffering? What's the product that you would have endurance? What does endurance do? It allows you to speak into other people's lives. What does that allow you to do? To put God on display. In other words, to bring God glory. And immediately people think, I can't add to God's glory. He's already glorious. That's true. You can't make God more glorious but you can put him on display. That's how you bring greater glory to God. You put him on display in the midst of your life, in the midst of your trauma, but Job is not there yet. He hasn't read the book of Job. He doesn't know how it ends, so he cries out. You see this in verse 33, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. I want an advocate, and his fear is that God's going to show up, and God does show up but not to crush him. Job's thinking is that God wants to pound him into the ground because of what he's been going through. God shows up, but not to crush. Chapter 38, verse 1, then the Lord, and you know, this is Jehovah. Look at the way it's used. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's speaking of the Lord God, Jehovah. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. This is just like when Elijah questioned God, and God bust forth on the scene out of the whirlwind. And God says, Who's obscuring my plans? It's really, really important that you see this in the vein in which this is taking place. If you're in the place right now where you're questioning the love of God or the plans of God when disaster strikes, know this, our generation especially is really, really good at laying disaster at the feet of God and just figuring He's completely out of control. We're so good at it, we even put it to music. Y'all know who Gordon Lightfoot is? We won't do a show of hands, okay, that's fine. <laughs> Gordon Lightfoot, really famous songwriter in the 70s and 80s, he wrote a song maybe most of you have heard, maybe of a certain age you haven't heard it. It's called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So in the 1970s, there was a, a freighter that broke apart on Lake Superior, a massive ship caught between these waves and it's split in half in Lake Superior in the gales of November, and the sailors, they went to the bottom of Lake Superior. It was only months later that Gordon Lightfoot sat down to write a song about that episode. And he asked this question in the midst of the song, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? If you've been in trauma, maybe you ask that question. Gordon Lightfoot's asking that question. Where's God? Where is God in this? Where does the love of God? It certainly isn't in the midst of that ship. Where does it go when the waves turn the minutes to the hours? So in the midst of the storm, God shows up and gives Job a perspective. And he says to Job what he says to anyone who's in the heart of the trauma when we doubt God's plans. Here's what he says to Job. You have a major problem, Job, and the problem that you have is not the problem you think you have. You have a perspective problem. Job, your God is too small. 
Now, you would expect God to show up in the midst of trauma and be the comforter, and He is the comforter, but because Job has challenged him, God retorts with, you don't have a good perspective, Job. Let me give you perspective, and this is where love speaks in pure truth, because truth confronts and truth corrects, and pure truth speaks truth, and this is what God does with Job. Chapter 38, verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it? And for the next four chapters, God dismantles every single argument that Job had used 36 chapters to put together. And all four chapters drive home the point that we humans vastly fail to comprehend the greatness of God. So along the way, God gives multiple examples, and He says, Job, I built the stars. I put the constellations in place. Watch this. Verse 31, can you bind the chains of Pallades? It's one of the constellations. Or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear? He's speaking of one of those giant red planets, Arcturus. Can you guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of heaven or fix their rule over the earth? And oh, by the way, Job, I built dinosaurs. Yeah, I did that too. It leaves Job with the response of, I, I spoke of things I didn't know. I'm sorry. I should have never said what I said. But because God gave him a perspective, a God perspective. To this point, we've seen the observer's perspective. Why did this guy deserve, did, what did he do to deserve this from the disciples? And, and then we've seen the sufferer's perspective. Job wants vindication. I'm a good person. I don't deserve this. And do you recall God's response on that point? Chapter 40, verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? I told you I'd come back to that. Must God be condemned that you would be justified? The answer is yes. Yes. That is what had to happen. But to order to understand it, we really need God's perspective. And that comes to the last illustration from Luke 13. Dr. Luke tells us there's an enormous crowd gathered around Jesus. There's so many people, they're actually climbing over the top of each other. Look with me on the screen, Luke 12:1. So many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. And Jesus takes this opportunity with these thousands upon thousands of people who are there. They're so very curious. Jesus uses the opportunity to speak about the coming judgment. And he begins rebuking them for their failure to read the signs so they can discern the weather, but you can't see what's right in front of you. And then all of a sudden, Luke seems to take a hard shift and he deviates to these guys who show up on the scene in the midst of Jesus' conversation with this news. Verse 1, chapter 13. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. It's not uncommon for Jesus to engage in conversation in the midst of his teachings. It's just a different way of doing church. And, and people apparently stand up and just begin asking him questions in the midst of his teaching. You want to do that? Go ahead, by the way. I don't really care. You can do that. That was what they did in that setting. And apparently, these guys show up in the midst of Jesus talking to thousands of people, and they go, 
Jesus, we just arrived from Jerusalem. You can't believe what Pilate just did. He executed people in the midst of the temple square while they're making sacrifices. This is like breaking news. Jesus is not in Jerusalem. They find him wherever he's at, and they arrive on the scene, and they've got to tell him. And the report of Pilate's action seems really abrupt in the midst of the story. It's like he's altering the direction of Jesus' message. And the impression is these messengers arrive with this news that just happened. The incident is not known from any other external source, just this portion here in Luke. That's where we get the detail but it fits with what's known of Pilate's reputation. He's the fifth procurator of Rome, and he's a wicked man. They've put him in place to gain control. So he has this reputation of being nasty and inflexible and self-willed and really wicked, and history records him as being prone to briberies and executions without trial. And he's a ferocious guy. He insults people to the degree that they want to fight with him. And historians say that Pilate appears to have been the one who stoked the fires of rebellion in Israel. But all of that aside, he's carried out this gruesome task of executing people in the temple. Israel only has one place to make sacrifices, and that's the temple. And that's why these people come there. They come to to worship. And here... Apparently, Pilate orders the execution of some people as they came to offer sacrifices. What what could possibly justify that kind of an action in that moment? Well, we don't get any more detail than that. But Jesus uses this as an interruption. He uses it as a beachhead to do this deep dive into God's perspective on suffering. Rarely do you ever find Jesus commenting on current events. But here he chooses to. Look with me on the screen, Luke 13, 2. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and anything he says about Pilate is sure to get ahead of him. Somebody's going to run with the information to Pilate and tell him, You won't believe what Jesus just said about you. But Jesus rises above the politics. He doesn't even touch that. He begins speaking to the bigger issue, so he rises above it, and he calls conventional thinking into question. And he asks this, do you think that the reason this happened is, in other words, what do you think, tens of thousands of listeners who are climbing all over each other to hear him? See, the common view in the first century I mentioned to you is that disaster and suffering is for punishment of sin. So the Jewish root theology at this time is if calamity fell upon you, you must be a really bad sinner. But if you're prospering, you must be a really good guy. God must really, really, really like you. You're doing so well. So Jesus asked the question, is that how you understand this? Is that the way you look at this? You need perspective. So he responds this way, Luke 13, 3, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the Greek language is really clear that this is super emphatic, and it's instantaneous when he says, no, unless there's repentance, each person is going to be destroyed. 
Now, that's a really bitter pill to swallow if you're a church person. If you're so righteous that you show up at the synagogues constantly in the first century and you go to the temple to make sacrifices and you're the children of Abraham and you cross all the T's and you dot all the I's and you do everything you're supposed to do and God the Son is saying to you, you've got to repent. So in their minds, I can just hear the wheels turning saying, repent? What in the world are you talking about? We're the sons of Abraham. And before they even get time to process it, Jesus inserts another headline. Go with me to the next verse, verse 4. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? Siloam is a, a section of Jerusalem. It's in the lower portion of the city in the southeast quadrant. It's, it's where there's a pool of water and a river that flows in. Hezekiah actually used that area to build a tunnel into the city to bring fresh water. And the pool of Siloam is there. That's where Jesus washed the eyes of the man in John chapter 9 who was born blind. One of Pilate's responsibilities was to build aqueduct systems. Rome was really good at that. And so Pilate has this construction system going on. And apparently part of the aqueduct construction system was to put scaffolding in place and to build towers. We don't get any real detail other than what's here in this story, but apparently people were crushed. The building collapsed and it took them out. And Jesus' question is, were, were they worse than you? Were they worse sinners than you? Here's his response in verse 5, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is God saying, no, the fact that suffering hasn't come to your house doesn't mean that you're any better than what they are. The fact is, there's a bigger issue going on here. There's a bigger issue at stake, bigger than the very real tragedy of a shortened life. The bigger fact is everyone's going to face hell unless they repent. Now, completely on a, on a different level, let me just address this. By the way, if you're looking at your watches, they aren't going to do you any good this morning. Just hang on, okay? <laughs> on a completely different level, people respond to this issue by saying, well, this suffering and this persecution, it must demonstrate that God's really not in control. If, that, if that's what you're thinking, if you're thinking God is not sovereign, if we take that approach to tragedy, we're going to have a really hard time explaining the sufferings of Jesus himself. He's staring down the ultimate suffering as he moves towards Jerusalem. No one ever in all of world history ever suffered like Jesus Christ suffered. What Jesus is driving at is this, and it's a really strong reminder. He's saying, we all have sin, not himself, us. That's what Romans 3.20 says, 3.23, we, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. So his response is, don't try and make others' sins greater than your sins. You have sin. You deserve death. You must repent. So because we live on a broken planet, it's filled with arrogant sinners who believe that God owes them an explanation. And the reality of our arrogance has crammed our world with disparity among the races. 
with lying, with cheating. We speak evil of one another. Humans murder humans on the streets and in the wombs of their mothers. That's the reality of our world. And that God doesn't wipe out the whole arrogant lot of us is absolutely stunning. It speaks to his mercy. And it speaks to the patience of God. One more opportunity to say amen this morning. God is great in mercy. Let me show you something from the screen. Ephesians 2.4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Oh, man. That's the biggest issue. Thank you, God. So those listening to Jesus by the thousands that day, they escaped a fate like the Galileans, not because of their goodness, but because of God's patience. So the Bible declares to follow that up. What you have to do with this information, you have to repent. You don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what this afternoon holds. It's God's grace and his mercy that's given you this moment right now at 12 o'clock on Sunday. What are you going to do with this? Are you going to act on it? Scripture says this, Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. So the Bible declares that we all deserve death, and yet God lets us live. And we live and we enjoy blessings in this life, and if we honor him, eternity in the next life, that's the kindness and the patience of God. The fact that God is not, in this moment, bringing an end to all things on this planet does not mean he's approving of what sinners are doing right now. What it means is God is merciful. He is a patient God. But the day of grace that we currently live in, it is coming to an end. It may be 500 years from now. It may be five days from now. I certainly don't know. What I'm compelled by I'm compelled by the reality that when Jesus suffer, when suffering comes, Jesus is asking the question, are you prepared when the tower falls in your world? His point is just because Pilate's soldiers ran past you to get to the Galileans to kill them says nothing about your position before God. Just because the ambulance doesn't stop at your house won't mean that you're any better off in the eyes of God than anybody else. Unless you personally have already dealt with the salvation issue and the forgiveness of sin, which is only possible through Jesus Christ our Lord. The true calamity and the biggest issue of this question, and the one that most people are ignoring, is not the individuals who are killed in a temple or when a building falls in Florida or when a virus infects our planet. The, the biggest issue, the real calamity will be when death comes, you will perish eternally if you don't repent. So to Jesus, the issue is not, how do I understand suffering? The issue is, have I received eternal salvation? I just want to end it with this thought. It's not just being sorry for your sin. If you're new to church, you especially need to hear that. It's not just being sorry. The Bible says that's not enough. 
It's forgiveness of that sin in the name of the only one who can do something about that sin. The one who can turn the sorrow for sin into forgiveness. And his name is Jesus Christ. That's the one who can change it. So God asked the ultimate question. This is how we're going to end. God asked it 2,000 years before God the Son became Jesus the man. Job 40, verse 8. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Yes. The answer is yes. God the Son became Jesus the man to be condemned to death for the death that we deserved in order to take our sin upon him. The only one who truly did not deserve to suffer, who suffered a trauma unimaginable, did it willingly because we humans are that broken. But it was the only way to make all things new. That's the God who's for you. So that song we sang earlier, The Blessing, Michael said to me earlier this week, you know, that, that song we're doing, it's pretty repetitive, Mark. It goes on quite a bit. I'm going to tell you, church, that's a blessing and a song you can't hear often enough. God is for you. He is for you. And that's why he took the trauma for you. You want to know more about that? You want to know more about how to give your life to Jesus and have him forgive you of your sins? There'll be leaders over in the prayer room after the service. I'd be honored to talk with you. I myself would be glad to do that. And if we haven't met or connected yet, I'll be standing here in the front. Right now, I want to pray for you. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you stand up? And I'm going to pronounce a blessing over you. Lord God, I pray for every single individual in this auditorium and every single person who's watching virtually right now who's been part of what we've talked about. Your word brings conviction. And you've brought conviction this morning. You've caused your word to come alive. And you've spoken truth to us. So God, I ask that you would send us out now with your blessing, but also with your boldness. As we encounter individuals who are in our social circle, God, who don't know answers to these issues, make us bold enough to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not of the things that we know so well, but the things that you would show us. Give us your heart. Let us speak the truth in love gentleness and meekness, but willing to confront. God, I ask for that for this church. God, I pray your blessing over us. So God, I ask that you would bless us and keep us and cause your face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us from now until the day that you return. We ask for this in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.